we've sued Republican presidents, we've sued Democratic presidents, we sued the Bushes, we sued Clinton, we sued Obama. So in that respect, you know, we will sue Trump. Post Donald Trump, I think there's a huge growth of ACLU membership. We've quadrupled our numbers. You will have to contend with the full firepower of the ACLU at your every step. We're, we're in for the fight of our lives. We've never seen anything like this in our 96-year history. It's times like this when organizations like ours are so critical. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the big man getting played by little rocket man, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Today's show is about the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. I'm worried about what's happening there, not because of anything Donald Trump is doing directly, but in large part as a consequence of his election. Wait, the ACLU in trouble, you say? The organization appears to be thriving because of Trump. It's in the forefront of fighting him on issues like the travel ban and family separation. Donations and support are pouring in because the ACLU is, in its own words, standing up to Trump's war on equality. But I worry that the new members and their new money may be making the ACLU more political and less about the neutral principles embodied in the Bill of Rights. I don't want to see the ACLU become just another anti-Trump organization. But there are signs that the new supporters are shifting its orbit at least a little. For the first time, the ACLU is getting involved in elections around the country. It's spending $25 million on campaign ads around November races and ballot initiatives. And since the neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville last year, the ACLU has been reconsidering its free speech defense of white supremacists. A committee chaired by its legal director, David Cole, you've heard him before on this show, recently sent out a memo to its affiliate offices advising them on how to weigh speech rights against its commitment to equality for marginalized groups. To me, that memo reads like a shift in the organization's thinking, even though Cole and others argue that it isn't. One of the things that distinguishes the United States, even from other liberal democracies, is the First Amendment. Our Constitution places the highest value on freedom of expression, even for those whose beliefs we detest. Unlike in Western Europe, we don't have hate speech laws here. They're unconstitutional. Short of inciting actual violence, you can't be punished for expressing any opinion. What's extraordinary about the ACLU is its nearly century-long commitment to defending that core principle, even for extremists, Nazis, communists, the KKK, flag burners, what have you. But today, the ACLU's values are under attack from the left as well as the right. A generation of younger social justice warriors doesn't support the First Amendment as reflexively as my generation does. Many of them regarded as cover for inequality, oppression, or white supremacy. Does this shift in thinking in the Trump era put the organization in jeopardy? I'll be back to discuss that with former ACLU President Nadine Strassen right after we do the tweets. Twitter is getting rid of fake accounts at a record pace. Will that include the failing New York Times and the propaganda machine for Amazon, the Washington Post, who consistently quote anonymous sources that, in my opinion, don't exist? They will both be out of business in seven years. 
Public opinion has turned strongly against the rigged witch hunt and the special counsel because the public understands that there was no collusion with Russia. So ridiculous. That the two FBI lovers were a fraud against our nation and that the only collusion was with the Dems. The rigged witch hunt, originally headed by FBI lover boy Peter S. for one year. And now 13 angry Democrats should look into the missing DNC server, Crooked Hillary's illegal deleted emails, the Pakistani fraudster, Uranium One, Podesta, and so much more. It is a Democratic con job. I have confidence that Kim Jong-un will honor the contract we signed, and even more importantly, a handshake. We agreed to the denuclearization of North Korea. China, on the other hand, may be exerting negative pressure on the deal because our posture on China trade. Hope not. I'm joined on the line by Nadine Strassen. She's a professor at New York Law School and the former president of the ACLU. Her new book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Nadine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. So I wanted to have you on to talk about whether there's been a change uh, at the ACLU in the age of Trump, and if so, what it is. And so, Nadine, the, this issue comes up because of a, of a document that was originally leaked from the ACLU. It is, um, I've got it in front of me. It's um, called ACLU Case Selection Guidelines, Conflicts Between Competing Values or Priorities. And as I understand it, this document went out to the regional ACLU offices. It's a product of the ACLU staff, not the ACLU board. Um, but it basically says, here are the questions we should ask when uh, deciding whether to take on cases, balancing issues of First Amendment rights, free speech on the one hand, and kind of social justice on the other. Is that the right way to understand what I'm looking at here? Not exactly, Jacob. And I am very familiar with that document, which I read uh, before it was generally published, because I, of course, am extremely committed. I say, of course, from the title of my book, extremely committed to the ACLU's traditional, longstanding position of neutrally defending all civil liberties for all people, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, and even if they are exercising their rights to advocate anti-civil liberties views. So I uh, was very concerned that the ACLU not succumb to the pushback. We always get whenever we defend free speech and other rights for anti-civil libertarians. We certainly had a huge pushback before my time in the Skokie case in the late 1970s. Uh, there was another pushback more recently in 2017 after defending free speech rights for alt-right demonstrators in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I this, completely- this document, sorry to interrupt you, but this, this document, yeah. if I understand it, really comes out of the post-Charlottesville reaction and the unhappiness of a lot of ACLU supporters with the position 
the ACL took in that case, right? Exactly. And I think not so much the position that ACLU took, Jacob, as whether it was an appropriate use of the ACLU's resources. In other words, there wasn't a suggestion that the First Amendment principles were wrong, were wrong that people who have hateful views should still have freedom to express those views. And, and the reason it's, you know, this will sound like very uh, technical distinction, but the reason that this document was not adopted by the ACLU's National Board of Directors, which sets policy for the organization, but instead by the staff, which implements board policy, is precisely because there was no change in policy. There wasn't even an effort to get the board to change its standards for taking cases. So um, the issue in that these guidelines address is not whether we should take a particular case, but if so, how that case should be handled in a way to maximize public understanding of the critically important principles at stake and minimize the misunderstanding that somehow the ACLU is affirmatively championing these, you know, despicable views. I mean, as a longtime supporter of the ACLU, reading this document, it did read different to me from what I understood the ACLU's position to be. Um, And I'll read you just a a passage that kind of jumped out at me. It said, Mm -hmm. in deciding how to use our limited resources, no civil liberties or civil rights value should automatically be privileged over any other. There is no presumption that the First Amendment trumps all other amendments or vice versa. I mean, does the ACLU not think that the First Amendment comes first? That was what I always understood the ACLU to be all about. Yeah, and that's really a misunderstanding uh, because our mission from the beginning has been to defend all fundamental freedoms for all people uh, to the maximum extent and often or I shouldn't say often, but regularly there are situations where multiple civil liberties are somewhat in tension with each other, including various First Amendment freedoms. So, for example, there are often conflicts between free speech concerns and privacy concerns, between free speech concerns and religious freedom concerns, including uh, separation of church and state. And the ACLU's responsibility is to do to the best of our ability what government is supposed to do, which is to not automatically elevate one of those rights over the other, but to accommodate and respect all of them as much as possible. And I think that's it's critically important to have an organization that does that, Jacob. There are many organizations and many individuals who staunchly, automatically will prefer free speech when, for example, there's a conflict between First Amendment, let's say, right of access to information, transparency on the one hand, versus individual privacy on the other hand. My friends on in the First Amendment bar and in press organizations and media organizations pretty reflexively, if not automatically, would prefer First Amendment rights. Uh, conversely, my friends in the privacy community organizations such as EPIC, Electronic Privacy Information Center, will pretty much automatically prefer privacy. And there's a special credibility that the ACLU can bring to these debates when we do our best to 
honor uh, all of the civil liberties concerns at stake. So how did the ACLU end up defending the Nazis in Skokie, actually, a case my father was involved in as an ACLU lawyer in Chicago, or the Brandenburg case where they defended, uh, the ACLU defended a Ku Klux Klan speaker? I mean, if you're balancing the First Amendment against these other civil rights, how can such extreme views be worthy of of defense if what if the goal of the speaker is to suppress the the rights of minorities and 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 thank you your father for his wonderful contribution i know times were very hard especially for the lawyers on the ground in in illinois there was enormous uh resistance and criticism very painful uh personal criticism i think the ACLU i think they lost about half their membership in we chicago lost, well not quite yeah, yeah. But we did lose 15% of our members, which shows the lack of support for free speech when even the members of such a diehard free speech organization uh, would abandon it, saying, we believe in free speech, except this is the exception we want to draw. And I, by the way, I, I, I will come back to your specific question, Jacob, but this is why I think uh, the guidelines are so important, because they were... Um, giving strategies for maximizing public understanding. We are not defending the Nazis' message in that case. In Brandenburg, we were not defending the KKK's message. We were defending a neutral principle, which is especially important for the rights of minority groups. But we really haven't done as good a job as we should on the public education information aspect of the work. Now, uh, circling back to your one of your questions, Jacob, defending freedom of speech, it's such a robust concept of freedom of speech that it would extend to even hateful and hated ideas, was ultimately essential for effectively advocating equality rights and all of the countervailing concerns so that, you know, you argue, you said how if a civil liberties organization looks at the potential impact of the speech on equality rights, wouldn't you not defend the speech? But we look at it from a more abstract position. It's not the particular speech in the particular case that's at stake, but it's the principle that government may not pick and choose to suppress ideas just because in a particular community at a particular time, they are hated and despised. That will undermine uh, equality rights and the speech and organizations of minority groups especially. Nadine, I appreciate everything you're saying, but I'm just not convinced that these guidelines don't reflect a change that's happening at the ACLU. I mean, in response to this leak, there are a bunch of pieces. Wendy Kaminer, who was a former board member of the ACLU, published this this criticism in the Wall Street Journal. And then Ira Glasser, who was the director for a very long time, I think overlapping with the time you were at at the ACLU, Said he, you know, he thought there was really something going on here. And the, the response from David Cole, the legal director of the ACLU, sort of taking your position that nothing to see here, he described as Orwellian. And so, why, never mind me, why do people who know the ACLU as intimately as you do, some of them think that there is a departure here in terms of the supremacy of the First Amendment in the ACLU's hierarchy? 
Well, let me tell you this, Jacob. Uh, during the many years that I was on the ACLU National Board, I was first elected to it in 1983, so I'm definitely a member of the so-called old guard, right, uh, who very much uh, stays in touch. I'm a member of the National Advisory Council now as well. Uh, the ACLU National Board had 80, more than 80 members. It's small, somewhat smaller, but still extremely large. And even if it was small, you know, the executive committee was small, there was constantly fervent, vigorous, vociferous debate and disagreement and dissent on virtually every issue, and likewise within uh, staff discussions. So, you know, it's not at all new. It would be extraordinary to have a group of civil libertarians who were not disagreeing with each other, including over such fundamental matters as whether we are being true to our founding ideals and how to interpret the founding ideals. Uh, You can tell me why I'm wrong here, but my read on this from the outside is that there is at least a tension between the staff, which I assume is younger, more tied into the social justice community, and more sympathetic to the view that there can be something repressive and hegemonic about free speech, that there's a tension between the staff view as reflected in this document and the board's traditional view, which is is less about that. It is, is more about the Skokie case, Brandenburg, a more something closer to an absolutist view of the First Amendment. Nothing, nothing to that? I, I think there may be something to that, Jacob, but the reason why I'm not wholeheartedly endorsing that hypothesis is that every survey that I have seen of of people in every generation throughout the decades that these surveys have been done show at least close to a majority, and in some years, substantially more than a majority, who believe that so-called hate speech should not be constitutionally protected. Again, let's go back to Skokie, way back in 1977 to 78, when 15% of our members who were not particularly young, our membership does, did not skew young then, um, 15% of them were abandoning the organization rather than stand up for that perspective. So I think the hypothesis that there's something especially unsympathetic to free speech about the younger generation, including within the ACLU, I I have reservations about that. But believe me, the only reason I wrote my book is that for me, if, you know, there's anybody who disagrees with that position, I want to have the opportunity to persuade them. And on the positive, and I'll pick up, you know, the positive part of what you said, the younger generation across the board, not only in the ACLU staff, but on campuses, is showing wonderfully increased support for human rights, equal rights, equal dignity, diversity, and and therefore we've seen an unprecedented surge in campus activism in support of those equal justice and social justice causes, and that is wonderful. And it is clear to me that they, along with most of the public, do not sufficiently understand because it's kind of paradoxical. How can defending freedom for this hateful speaker possibly not 
undermine uh, the cause of defeating hate. And, and that's why I felt moved to try to make the case, which I am more convinced of than ever, that well-intended as censorship might be, it actually does more harm than good to all of those cherished causes. Lastly, Dean, I want to ask you about Donald Trump's effect on the ACLU. Obviously, there has been a huge outpouring of support for the organization's principles. Uh, it's gotten a ton of new members, ton of contributions. Um, there's a danger uh, with organizations that find themselves in that kind of position. And one of the uh, danger is that the organization can end up reflecting what this, these new members and this new money wants rather than its core principles. I would worry about that a little bit if I were at the ACLU that, that with Trump that, you know, it's, it can be sort of too much of a good thing. You have all these new people, but they're not necessarily committed in the same way to the ACLU's neutral principles. They want you to stand up and fight Donald Trump on, an, on everything. Is that, is that an issue at the ACLU and how's the ACLU dealing with it? I think that is absolutely concern, and I should say to to show that I really put my money where my mouth is in terms of defending free speech for ideas I disagree with. I actually welcome the pushback that people like Ira Glasser and Wendy Kaminer are disseminating because I think it helps to keep the ACLU true to its mission. Throughout my long involvement with the organization, Jacob, we've re- regularly seen infusions of support from people who join us because of one particular issue, and that particular issue is usually embodied by a particular official who is seen as being an arch enemy of civil liberties, uh, Richard Nixon being one, Ronald Reagan and his attorney general, Ed Meese, Robert Bork, nominated to the Supreme Court, and so forth. And we will typically have a surge in membership that then dies off when the particular so-called boogeyman, uh, the visible threat to civil liberties, fades out of public consciousness, and then the public realizes, well, you're not an anti-Reagan organization or anti-Nixon organization. You're going back to your, I mean, you're adhering to your, your neutral mission. Uh, and, and then what tends to happen is not that they change the ACLU, but they leave the ACLU. So I think we, I, I thought you were going to say, is there a risk that you build a budget on this assumption that you're going to continue to have uh, vast I- increased support? And, well, and that's, that's, a, that's a risk too. That's also yeah, a danger. It, I have enormous confidence in in Anthony's um, uh, not only adherence to principles, but his stewardship on exactly that kind of financial and long-term planning and structural issues. On the one hand, you really you're talking want... about Anthony Romero. I should I'm just so let our, our listeners know who is he? is he your successor as president of the ACLU? No, Anthony is the executive director. Again, to get into the weeds of the organization, yeah. the president is what other organizations call the chair of the board a non-paid, non-staff position. The CEO, who is in charge of the day-to-day operation of the organization, is the executive director. Uh, That's Anthony Romero. I hired him. Ira Glasser was the executive director when I became president. He retired, and then the board uh, retained or hired Anthony as his successor. Gotcha. Well, it does sound like a place that has interesting board meetings. I expect they are not in the least (laughs) bit dull. 
May I tell you, Jacob, when I was elected president, the uh, New York Times did one of these people, the news profiles, and, and the pull quote was something that I had said in my presidential campaign. It was at just shortly after Michael Dukakis had been attacked by George W. Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush in the presidential uh, election of 1988, uh, Bush called Dukakis a card-carrying member of the ACLU, and that was very stigmatizing. So in my election speech to the board, I said I wanted to emphasize the American in American Civil Liberties Union, corny but true. And my husband, who had seen many stormy, knockdown, drag-out fights at the national board, said, I wish you would emphasize the Not lately. Well, uh, thank you very much. I've been speaking to Nadine Strassen. She is a longtime uh, figure with a longtime president at the ACLU, and her new book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Nadine, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for hosting me, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John DiDomenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Follow us at Real Trumpcast. We want to catch at Real Donald Trump. We've only got like 47 million more followers to go. Help us out. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I'm talking to you from Brussels. It's not only a country, it's a vegetable. Isn't that incredible?